When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Richard Quest. A new week begins, and this is your need to know. Chinese stocks are surging. Investors have charged into a bull market on a relentless and renewed optimism. We'll, uh, we'll get to grips as to whether this optimism is justified. Coronavirus cases are at a new high in Florida, California, and Texas. More restrictions after a long holiday weekend. We'll get numbers that show how bad it's got to, how bad it has become. And Buffett is buying a large deal in natural gas, and it raises the very investors' questions and thoughts. Where is he going next? It is Monday. We start a new week, and this is First Move. As I indicated, a very good day to you and a warm welcome. First move, Julia's off for the day. I'm at the helm uh, for the moment and uh, full steam ahead. The market is headed for a strong open after a long weekend. Uh, the futures are pointing to a gain of around 1%, uh, 1.5% actually now for the Dow futures. The S&P is same and as is the Nasdaq. A positive day overall for equities and it's off the back of what's happening in China where there's been a strong rebound, solid gains in Europe. UK and Germany are taking the lead. Bank and auto shares are amongst the best gainers of the day and uh, it's all helping sentiment. The Hong Kong Hang Seng is up 4%. The Shanghai Composite is over 5%. Both indices have now risen 20% from their recent lows. It is the classic definition, if you like, of a new bull market getting underway. And one of the reasons is Chinese state media saying that a healthy bull market is in the best interest of the country right now. Asian investors have been pricing that in and we're seeing very strong gains around all the APEC region markets. Uh, economic recovery, the valuation of Asian shares hit a 10 and a half year high at the moment. There you have, just look at the way the Shanghai has roared back up again. David Culver is in Beijing. David's with me now. This is very interesting, David, because even whilst Beijing is dealing with the remnants and some would say a second wave of coronavirus, the markets are telling a strong story of recovery. A massive surge, Richard. When you look at the Shanghai Composite, its best single-day performance since 2015. And you're absolutely right. We think about what we're in the midst of right now and these cluster outbreaks that have still been popping up and been really kind of put out rather quickly. But you have to look at how they're doing that now because the big concern going back to mid-March when we saw really some of the lowest points of this market 
were that when you were doing these lockdowns and these closures of society, you were stopping business altogether. And that was a big concern coming from the top. President Xi Jinping, when he would come out early on, would say two things. We've got to stop and contain the spread of this virus and we've got to stabilize the economy. Now what they have started to do, particularly within Beijing, as you mentioned, is they do this compartmentalized shutdown. So certain parts of the city are shut down, but the rest is open and business continues. And that is strategic and it's intentional in keeping the economy going. But the performance today certainly signaling that things are looking to be in a positive direction. The question will be, can it sustain itself here, Richard? And if we look at the industrial production numbers and if we look at hotel openings, just about all the economic metrics that one looks at does suggest that the Chinese economy has reopened relatively successfully and is coming back strongly. Now, taking the numbers with a pinch of salt because from where, from where they come, is that the anecdotal evidence too? It's fascinating to see where the successes are within the economy here because it's domestic related. All the travel that we have seen, and we have done a lot of travel over the past few months within China for obvious reasons, essentially the borders are shut down to everyone else as they're still trying to contain the spread of the virus. But you are noticing that some of the so-called revenge spending that they were expecting here post-virus is being spent within China. And that's something that seems to be intentional. State media seems to be quite happy about that, as does the government. And, and you're noticing it uh, certainly within uh, major cities that in, in the past may not have seen the spike in tourism from a, a mainland Chinese crowd, but now they're getting that because, quite frankly, people don't want to leave the country, so they're spending within. The other thing going forward is, is looking at uh, some of the production and where the supply chains are going to go. I think the big concern here also, and you hear this anecdotally, is that while China may be finding the stabilizing point, are they going to be able to find that on the consumer? And that is to say, you know, those factories that are producing things, are they still going to be able to sustain a customer base going forward? That's the other concern right now. But all signals from the market today indicate that at least one sector is doing quite well, and this is quite interesting, and that is defense here. Chinese defense stocks doing very well in performance today. And that's also in part with what we saw over this past weekend, Richard, out in the South China Sea, and that's increased tensions there. The U.S. sending two carrier strike groups to do some exercises. The Chinese not happy about that, but certainly the market's responding positively. David Culver, there is much there. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Now to the United States, where coronavirus cases, confirmed cases, continue to rise at record levels. California has reported a record 11,500 11, uh, to be, uh, I do beg your pardon, I seem to have, uh, have, have allowed myself to get ahead of myself. Um, we are, of course, supposed to, uh, talking about Warren Buffett at this particular point, my complete uh, mistake. Warren Buffett is buying natural gas assets, a nearly, 80, 10, a nearly $10 billion deal. It's the first big investment that Warren Buffett has made uh, in the Oracle of Omaha since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Claire Sebastian, Claire, I probably gave you a nasty shock there when you, uh, for one moment, uh, probably decided we were going off in a different direction. My apologies on that. Uh, we will be talking about the yes, but I do need to, we do need to get to grips far more uh, presciently with Warren Buffett. So this is a very large deal in natural gas. What's he done and why? 
Yeah, Richard, it is a pretty big deal. The enterprise value is $9.7 billion, of which Buffett is paying $4 billion uh, in cash. The rest is in acquisition of debt. This is for the, the sort of natural gas assets of Dominion Energy. And it's interesting because it shows that the Oracle of Omaha, who already has a very big portfolio in energy, uh, transportation, storage, all kinds of things, uh, is looking to expand that betting on fossil fuels at the same time uh, as Dominion Energy said in their press release announcing this deal that they are looking now to, to focus more on clean energy. That is certainly interesting. But interesting also because he has been on the sidelines, as you point out, throughout the pandemic. He sold all of his uh, his uh, shares in, in U.S. airlines at the beginning of May. That raised some eyebrows because the stocks have grown uh, since then. He is looking for the long term uh, on those stocks, we should point out. And so people have been wondering what he's going to do with this $137 billion in cash that, that Berkshire Hathaway has, a, a record for the company. So I think, you know, waiting until the, 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 the holiday weekend to do that and really going in big on energy is certainly going to fuel some bullish sentiment out there, not only on the recovery in the United States, but also perhaps when it comes to commodity prices. Right. But this particular deal, when taken with the fact of what he, he, he said, as you talk about airline stocks, you know, he, was, he was out of them for the time being. Everybody watches Buffett extremely closely. What's he said about where he's going? Not, not a huge amount, Richard. He's been very sort of cautious when it comes to the pandemic. He said, you know, the world has changed. Uh, interesting, I was comparing what he said uh, in the last few months with what he said in, in a, a well-known op-ed back in 2008, because you'll remember in the financial crisis, he went in hard into American stocks. He wrote this op-ed saying, buy American, I am, said he was putting all of his personal money into American stocks. He said at the time, most major companies will be setting new profit records, 5, 10, and 20 years from now. Now, fast forward to February of this year when the coronavirus pandemic was really just starting. We didn't really know the full scale of it. And he said, the real question is where these businesses are going to be in 5, 10, and 20 years from now. Some will do sensationally. Some will disappear. So I think you can you can say that his thinking has changed, not just because of the pandemic, but because if you look at the last 10 years and, and the record bull run that we've seen, perhaps he felt that that was unsustainable. So he's being a little bit more cautious about where to invest. Claire Sebastian, Claire with Warren Buffett. Uh, thank you. Now to the coronavirus cases in the United States, where we saw 11,700, a record cases, number of cases in California. Uh, similarly, Florida has also had a huge number, a total number there now surpassing 200,000. Rosa Flores is in Miami Beach. And where do we stand after the, after the long holiday weekend? Just bring me up to date. Are the number of cases in the last 24 hours or so, where are they? You know, the numbers continue to grow. Just this weekend, uh, Florida busted its daily record uh, with more than 11,400 cases. Richard, about a month ago, we were doing live shots talking about how experts were so worried because there were more than 1,000 cases a day or more than 2,000. And here we are a month later, and there are more than 11,400 cases in just one day this past weekend. Look, we've been looking at the numbers here in Miami-Dade County where I am, which is the epicenter of this crisis in the state of Florida. When you look at the positivity rate, it's 26% according to county data, which was released yesterday. The goal for the county is to have a daily positivity rate of no more than 10%. Well, they've busted that for more than 
14 days straight. That's why so many local leaders are very concerned. When you look at the hospitalizations, for example, the state of Florida only releases the number of hospital beds available in the state. That's 26%. But they don't release the number of COVID-19 patients that are hospitalized currently. That does not stop local leaders from releasing that data. In Miami-Dade, where I am, they are releasing that data, and it's staggering because when you look at those numbers, it really gives you an idea of how this, this infection is spreading and progressing. If you look at hospitalizations yesterday, there were about 1,500 people in, in hospitals here where I am um, with COVID-19. On June 23rd, there was about 800 uh, people in hospitals with COVID-19. That's an 88% increase in hospital beds. If you look at ICU beds, there's an increase of 114%. If you look at the number of ventilators that are being used during that same time period, the increase is 119%. Richard, that is why these local leaders are so concerned. And the mayor of the city where I'm standing right now called out President Trump this weekend saying that there are too many mixed messages sent from the federal, state and local levels because the local levels are really focusing on the wearing of masks, the social distancing. The mayor here, Dan Gelber, said over the weekend that when he when the president doesn't wear a mask and he has rallies, large gatherings that do not mandate masks, that sends the wrong message. Richard. Rosa Flores, thank you. In a moment on First Move. A sparkling debut for an insurance company with a slight difference. It's called Lemonade. We'll talk to the CEO of that. And Hong Kong denies bail to the first person charged under its new security law. Uh, obviously, these are major developments leading activists to flee the territory. We speak to one of those activists in just a moment. It's first move. Julia's off today. Um, Welcome back to First Move. These are the stories and the headlines making news around the world. India has surpassed Russia in overall coronavirus cases. On Monday, the health ministry reported more than 24,000 new infections in a 24-hour period. It means nearly 700,000 people in India have been diagnosed with COVID-19. Only the US and Brazil have recorded more cases. A group of more than 200 scientists is set to release an open letter to the global health officials who say they say the role that airborne transmission plays in the spread isn't being talked about enough. Health officials need to do a better job alerting the public. Uh, CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. I was reading a bit about this over the weekend. Um, this is really the, the WHO will not say yet because they don't believe that the scientific evidence that proves general transmission by air from little droplets, That's the, as opposed to sort of being close to somebody with large droplets, correct? Well, it's a really scary word. Everyone tries to sort of think very, very seriously before they use the A word, the airborne word. Let me talk a little bit about what the difference is. Obviously, we know that COVID spreads person to person, and you don't have to be in contact with that person. You don't have to kiss them in order to get it. So therefore, it does, to some extent, spread through the air. The word airborne, though, has a bit of a different connotation. So what you see authorities emphasizing now is that it spreads through sneezes or coughs. In other words, you need to be near someone 
who was actively sneezing or coughing and propelling it through the air. What these scientists and others are saying is, wait a minute, it's more than that. It can just be in droplets when you're talking. It can just be spread through droplets when you're breathing. You don't need the sneezes or coughs. Of course, that can, that does, it can spread that way, but you don't necessarily need that. It might just be breathing and talking. This is not a secret, Richard. As a matter of fact, the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. wrote a letter to the White House more than two, more than three months ago, actually, saying just that. It can spread through breathing and talking. So this has been known, but health authorities and certainly President Trump, you don't see them emphasizing it because it is much scarier to think that all you need to do is be um, in the vicinity of someone who's breathing it and that those droplets can hang in the air. Richard? The, 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 this obviously is a I mean, the, the reality will be much different if it can be transmitted through much easier airborne transmission. But also, Elizabeth, I'm now starting to read that the idea of it being transmitted on surfaces, whilst being a technical possibility, in reality, it's not the way people have been getting it. Right. That is certainly what experts have been telling me, is that can it happen through a surface? Absolutely. Is that the main way that people are getting it? Absolutely not. And and so it, it sort of depends. If someone who is infected, um, you know, scratches their nose, puts their hand on a table, and you come by right afterwards, touch that exact spot, and then you touch your nose, you know, sure, that might do it. But probably it's it's much more indirect, usually. So is it possible? Yes. Is it the driver of this outbreak? Probably not. Elizabeth Kern, excellent. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Now, New York City, Thanks. where of course I am, is entering phase three of reopening. One point, though, to note about the New York phase three, they will not be allowing indoor seating at restaurants. Uh, the net effect of that, by the way, is that the entire uh, uh, Manhattan now starting to look like a sort of a Paris wannabe with uh, street cafes bursting out into the road, into the bus lanes. Businesses offering personal care can resume most of their services. One key aspect of phase three has been delayed, indoor dining. One of the ways of rethinking, Sweet Green, a chain of salad restaurants. It's had to furlough nearly 2,000 workers. Sweet Green originally received $10 million from the Paycheck Protection Program. Now it returned the money. Uh, instead, it got investment by other means, and it's now bringing about three quarters of the people who were furloughed. Jonathan Neiman is the CEO of Sweet Green, joins me. Now, good to see you, Jonathan. Kind of you to, to, to join us. Um, I think one of the most important things is that you have been able to bring back more than 75% of your furloughed team workers as the economy opens up, um, but you're still a long way from a normal business. That's right. We're, our business is not fully back to pre-COVID levels, but we've seen huge increases over the past three months, really from a low in April. Uh, I credit it mostly to the pivoting of the business. We've been able to change our operations into a digital-only model, offering uh, pickup and delivery all through our own mobile app. And we've been able to capture uh, a lot of the lost sales that we had. Of course, as you mentioned, New York City is the hardest hit where we happen to have a lot of restaurants. But overall, we're, uh, we're not only did we pivot our operations to digital only, but also introduced a new menu category of hot plates.
which has allowed us to meet customers and offer an op an, uh, an option for them to eat dinner and more homey food in this time. It, I, the difficulty is, I mean, I was out and about this weekend in, in, in the city, in, in New York. You know, street dining is fine. The number of tables available is, even with the increased number because of bus lanes and things, is still lower than there would have been. If you, if you add it all up, can you make up the difference between extra tables, street dining versus what you had before and takeaway versus what you had before? Can you get it even approaching the same sort of numbers? I think for most restaurants, the answer is no. For most, re most restaurants depend on their in, in indoor dining to make it. For us, so much of our business is already takeaway and delivery that we've been able to make it work with those increases. However, there are certain places where it's tough. We've, we've made the decision due to the, due to the resurgence in cases to shut down indoor dining across the country. Don't see us opening up that for a while. Um, we have introduced curbside in certain places. Uh, like I said, our pickup and delivery all on our own app is really what's driving it. And then, and then where possible, we have some, some outdoor dining uh, where possible and where safe. But you know what's, what's challenging is not only the safety of our customers, but the safety of our team members and how they feel about coming to work. So we're very intentional about trying to create a safe space for them. Do you feel Sorry, a bit ahead. aggrieved, a bit peeved, a bit peeved that um, you, there is over 150, 160 billion that was left in the PPP money that had to be extended? Now, you gave your money back and apparently you can't now apply again because it's considered to have been a loan that was repaid and you only get it once. Do you think now, in hindsight, you should have been allowed to keep it? You know, I don't because I still believe that there's good uses for that, for those funds, especially as we see the resurgence in cases. We're fortunate to have access to capital and have a healthy balance sheet in order to weather this storm and would love for that money to go to businesses which may not have that same opportunity. So I hope it goes to good use. I hope it goes uh, in, this, in the spirit of what it was created for is right. to protect jobs, not just to bolster up businesses. And I really hope that it goes towards those efforts. Jonathan, finally, uh, you talk about your new menu, more homely foods, sort of feel-good foods. What sort of things have you got on the menu um, that, 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 you, you, that, that you think, this, this is a food for our times? Yeah, so Sweet Green, our, our food ethos is all about serving local, fresh, delicious, um, mostly organic food uh, delivered straight to you. And so the idea was to maintain that same sort of ethos of fresh, healthy, real food, but expand it beyond the bowl, which is mostly we were serving salads uh, into a more of a dinner plate style concept. So imagine getting a plate with a half roasted chicken, some wild rice or cauliflower rice and some roasted vegetables um, with a nice some sort of sauce to it. We have a, a selection of plates and you can make your own. It's the type of, you know, food you'd make you'd want to cook at home if you're right. trying to eat a delicious and healthy meal with ingredients straight from the farmer's market. Excellent. It's half past nine in New York. I'm hungry already. But then that's what happens when you get up early. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jonathan. Good, good to see you. Great to see, I, great I, to I've be got the app you. somewhere.
probably known the speed of these things, probably got it before. Raphael, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Now, when we come back in just a moment, the market opens. We'll obviously show you where we're standing on that. That's more. It is first move. I'm Richard Quest, the for Juliet. And a very good day. After a long holiday weekend, the market is just seconds away from getting underway and back into business. Uh, U.S. stocks are a big in trading after the long holiday weekend, expecting a positive week for stocks. It's a case of risk on across the world. Global stocks are at a four-week high on hopes of a strong economic rebound. Uber shares are rallying, having bought the delivery firm Postmates. Pause for the bell. Ah, it is 9.30 on the east coast of the United States. Where was I? Uber shares rallying after they're buying the food delivery firm Postmates. Remember, they lost out on Grubhub amid antitrust concerns. So instead, they've decided to go for Postmates to an $1 billion deal. And the market likes it. It's up 8% best part of. Now, the insurance startup Lemonade has logged one of the 2020's best IPOs in history. The company's value more than doubled to nearly $4 billion after it surged 140% on its first day of trading. Lemonade uses artificial intelligence, flat fees, to give its mainly millennial customers fast, fuss-free insurance at home or home insurance. The IPO is a much-needed win for SoftBank, which owns 22% stake. Uh, joining me now are Lemonade CEO and co-founder, Dan Schreiber. Dan, good to have you with us. Dan, I'm just going to get the first one straight out of the way. Whenever we have an IPO that uh, goes up by, you end up by 140%, it begs the question that your brokers and your advisors and your investment bankers mispriced and you left good money behind. Good morning. <clears throat> um, could be. Time will tell. I, I think the um, sage counsel of Benjamin Graham that in the short term, the stock markets are voting machines rather than weighing machines as they are in the long term kind of rings true here as well. We've been trading for all of less than one day. So I don't think I'd read too much into what happens to a stock in just a matter of hours. This is an early IPO for a young company with many years, hopefully decades of growth ahead of it. We're going to need the perspective of years in order to really answer that question more fully. Now, Dan, I don't know whether I am your typical uh, potential customer. I'm a long way from being millennial by any stretch of definition. But I did get a quote from Lemonade this morning for my living room and my home here in New York. I went online and I got a quote and it is lower than I'm existing, my existing insurance. Of course, I've got to read the small print to see if the coverage areas are the same. But am I the sort of person you're after who's got maybe one or two more complicated aspects to insurance? Or are you, from what I look online, you seem to want renters, quick and easy, high volume? Richard would absolutely love to have you as a customer. And it looks like you can save some money by switching to Lemonade. So please do. 
Lemonade really tries to bring together three things, um, a seamless user experience. Hopefully you had fun with the whole purchasing. Uh, it takes about 90 seconds. The median time to get a, a quote with Lemonade is 90 seconds. It takes twice as long to get a Starbucks coffee. So we're talking about a seamless experience. Aligned values, underwriting profits often go to nonprofits where public benefit corporation and everybody wants to work with companies with whom they have aligned values and an instant experience. So not only is purchasing quick, but we pay claims in as little as three seconds. I think that cocktail of value, values and experience appeal to people of all ages. Certainly it skews right. younger because but, people who but, but grew Dan, up on a phone. Dan. Yeah. Dan, Dan, there's, there's two aspects on that. First of all, the social, social aspect. I want to go with that. The, great that you do with all that social aspect and uh, retains so monies put in and, and um, uh, claims that are not. All, all that is excellent. But when you have social values as part of your core, as most companies do, you have to choose which social values you're going to follow. And at the moment, that is not easy when there can be disagreements. Things like, for example, uh, freedom of choice um, uh, and, say, for example, on abortion rights. Where are you going to draw the line when it comes to your social values? That's a great question. And we do offer a wide array of charities that customers choose for their give back. But we've also taken stances that some might consider controversial. So, for example, after the massacre in Las Vegas, we decided to put a limit on how many guns we would insure and entirely to exclude assault rifles. Um, and we also are the only insurance company in America to say we won't invest in coal or polluting industries. We don't need to appeal to everybody. We want people who feel aligned with Lemonade to really feel passionate about it. And I, I should know the answer to this. The name Lemonade. Um, Remind me, I, I, I've seen it before, but remind me again for those that aren't familiar. Sure. So it's not a three-letter acronym and it doesn't have the word state or farm in it, as most insurance companies in America seem to. So A, it just sticks out, but re really it's about when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And that's really what insurance is about. Bad things happen, use lemonade to make them sweet. And I've got a lovely jar of lemonade in the fridge, which I shall be having a swill on after the break. Thank you. Dan, good to see you, and you might even get my business. Might, might, got to be careful here, not promoting anything. Thank you very much. Thank we you. talk a lot about what's happening with aviation. The pandemic has wreaked havoc. Every continent, every airline. Arguably, the US hasn't done too badly in the sense that it's had lots of government support. Same in Europe. But in Latin America, it's a very different story. A lack of government support coupled with vanishing amounts of business has left airlines into bankruptcy. Stefano Pazno reports from... Leslie Barragan is folding her uniform for the last time. Okay. Like hundreds of other Colombian workers in the flight industry, she lost her job because of COVID-19. It's been my whole life's dream to be a flight attendant for Avianca. And now I have to say goodbye to that dream. Not because I didn't do my job, but because of coronavirus. The future is frightening for the single mother and her family, who are moving because they can no longer afford their flat. Leslie's story is not unique. Across Latin America, businesses are scaling down as the International Monetary Fund predicts this pandemic will trigger the harshest economic recession in decades. Airlines in particular are taking a hit as people stop traveling for work and for pleasure. 
LATAM, Avianca and Aeromexico, three of Latin America's major carriers, have been filed for bankruptcy since May. Normally one of the biggest hubs in the region, Bogota's airport is all but closed. This vending machine used to sell snacks. It has now been re-equipped to sell face masks, but there is nobody here to buy them. You can almost feel an eerie atmosphere walking around these halls that are now completely empty. This airport is working hard to provide increased safety measures for when the flights will finally resume. The International Air Transport Association thinks the air industry won't recover until 2023. So the impact on jobs like Leslie's could be long-standing. Both my mother and my daughter depend on me. Mine was our only salary. We have no other income. And we have to pay rent, food and school fees now. In a statement to CNN, Avianca said dismissals like Leslie's case reflect that post-COVID operations will be much more reduced once we will be allowed to fly again. With limited road infrastructure, traveling by air is often the only way of connecting cities and businesses. To avoid further layoffs, some workers are coming up with preventative solutions. The Colombian Pilots Union say they have proposed a voluntary pay cut across the board, as long as Avianca doesn't release a single pilot in the next two years. Our proposal is simple. Don't fire anyone. We supplement our own wages. And when you'll need pilots, they already are part of the company and trained. While Captain Pinzon waits for Avianca's response to the offer, he and thousands of other flight crew members are flying blind, searching for hope on the horizon. Stefano Pozzebon, CNN, Bogota. The first person to be charged under Hong Kong's new security law imposed by Beijing has been denied bail at a, call here, at a, court, at a court hearing earlier today. CNN's Anna Corrin has the details. The first person to be charged under Hong Kong's new sweeping national security law that came into effect less than a week ago, creating a climate of fear and uncertainty in this city, has been denied bail and will remain behind bars. 23-year-old Ying Kit Tong, who appeared here in West Kowloon Magistrates Court, arrived in a wheelchair after he rode a motorbike through the streets of the city on the 1st of July, holding a flag with the slogan, Liberate Hong Kong, a revolution of our time. Well, shortly after, he crashed into police, injuring himself and three police officers. The prosecution said that because the crowds were cheering as he drove past holding the now illegal flag, he was inciting secession. He has also been charged with terrorist activities because of injuring police. Well, nine other people were also arrested that day under the national security law, but were all released on bail. A total of 370 people were arrested on the 1st of July, mostly for unlawful assembly. When I spoke to Tong's lawyer, Lawrence Lau, after the court appearance, he said that his client was in good spirits, both mentally and physically. But due to the highly sensitive nature of this national security law that bans sedition, subversion, terrorism and colluding with foreign forces, he would not divulge any information about the case. Instead saying, quote, these are challenging times for Hong Kong. The city is facing its darkest hour. With China now firmly in control by implementing this new national security law, there are grave fears as to what this will mean for the city's freedoms, especially the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press and freedom of assembly. 
Well, over the weekend, books by pro-democracy activists were removed from public libraries, including one from high-profile activist Joshua Wong. The 23-year-old who quit his party, Demosisto, which then disbanded a day before the national security law was implemented, appeared in a different court today on three charges for organising and inciting protests last year. Wearing a black T-shirt that read, They can't kill us all, he pleaded not guilty to the charges. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Nathan Law is the former Hong Kong legislator. He's the founding chair of Demosisto and joins me now. So the, the first cases are moving forward. And to, to the extent that this new law has had its desired effect of, uh, of uh, squashing dissent and, um, and protest, it would seem at the beginning, at least, to be working, however unpleasant that might be for you to have to recognize. Well, uh, well, if you see how Hong Kong people respond, you, you could still see a little bit of hope out of it. Of course, this, this law is so draconian that it basically squashed uh, the, the freedom of expression of Hong Kong people, but people still resist. We, we've seen, we've seen uh, more than 100,000 people marching down to the street on 1st of July, and subsequently, more and more people protesting online. So I could see that um, Hong Kong uh, resistance movement, there is still tenacity and perseverance inside it. What do you see now as your role? What do you believe you can now, and in terms of leading a movement that opposes the law, how do you move forward and what's your role? International support has always been a crucial factor for Hong Kong's democratic movement. Under the national security law, all the international advocacy work we have been doing could be considered as a breach of the law and to be framed or um, fabricated as colluding with foreign forces. So for me, um, coming to the international stage, uh, I can continue my international advocacy work without these restrictions. You know, the, 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 the very nature of this law and its extraterritorial aspect means that my questions have to be exceptionally carefully thought through in the sense of that I don't commit an offence and also that I don't lead you in doing so to commit an offence in your answers. The mere fact we're both having to do this dance show, with this law shows its difficulty and extremity. Yes, definitely. There, there has been a well, white terror and a politics of fear imposed in Hong Kong. So you can see how draconian and how destructive uh, this law to Hong Kong's freedom. The problem is that large businesses have signed on. The major banks, even without knowing what the law said, said they supported it. And there is a sector of belief that as long as the major employers sign on to this, HB, HSBC, Standard Chartered, uh, Cathay Pacific, as long as they sign on to this law, you're very much on the back foot. Well, it's a disgrace to see uh, big companies like those you named um, kowtow to Beijing 
they are basically a bunch of salesmen that's selling products that they haven't even seen it. So this is the problem. Beijing wants to, well, everyone to stand in line with them right. without knowing what, what they'll face. And that's a disgraceful. Nathan, there is an argument which is not easy to put to you, but that, that the protesters brought the house down around their heads. That the protests were so long and in some cases so violent and in many cases lost the support of people in Hong Kong, that Beijing acted and now it's, it's, it's a case of you are back to square one. In fact, beyond that, you're not even on the board of game. Well, uh, the movement, according to latest data, is still enjoying a major support in the society. And uh, well, if you look into the, the demands of the people, these are all very humble. These are the demands that uh, Beijing should have uh, given Hong Kong people for long. Democracy and freedom and autonomy and that's it. So I think the root cause of that is definitely the um, autocratic nature of the regime instead of people resisting. Nathan Law, thank you. appreciate it in a thank moment. Thank you so much. Uh, the UK opened over the weekend. It was a case of, well, lively scenes in Soho. After the break. The UK government has announced more financial support for cultural organisations amounting to some $2 billion. Now, this many remain closed, uh, but perhaps they are the only things that are after a large, big reopening in England over the weekend. England, not Scotland or, or, or Wales. Pubs, restaurants and cinemas welcomed people indoors for the first time in months. And there were, very, there were some scenes of large numbers of people in London's fashionable Soho. You can see there the plexiglass being used by pubs to keep staff uh, safe. Anna Stewart is in London. Um, Anna, um, I know that the rest of the country wasn't quite as gregarious in terms of its opening, but there were some wild scenes in Soho. Mm. There really were. I was actually reporting on the pubs reopening here in England on Saturday, and for the large part, people in England pay fairly responsibly as they celebrated the end of lockdown, but that was not the case in a very small part of Soho in central London. Actually, really, speaking to people there today, only around three streets, it felt like a street party or a festival. Very quiet inside restaurants and pubs, though, along that very road because you have limited seating. All the safety precautions are now in place for these restaurants, for these bars. But the streets were crowded. People weren't wearing facial coverings. Huge queues outside one off-license I spoke to you were told to close by the police early to try and limit how much people were drinking. And that is thought to be what really fueled the night. Too much alcohol, too much excitement. Hopefully, really... Uh, a one-off as people just over-celebrated, overdid it and forgot about social distancing measures on day one. Hopefully that's the last we'll see of that. Richard? Right, but, but the reopening is now underway. What's the next stage? Well, I was just talking about this arts package, Richard, which is very interesting because while much of England has reopened, here the West End, you can see the theatres behind me, the doors are shut and the curtains are still down and they will be for some time to come. 
No date yet as to how some of these businesses can reopen. So the UK government has announced an aid package of nearly $2 billion, the vast majority of which will be grants to these businesses to keep them afloat for the next months to come. Many don't expect to reopen until next year. And theatres, actually like this one that uh, holds Les Miserables, have already started looking at redundancies. Perhaps this package has come in the nick of time. Perhaps they can pause that process. Um, bit very worrying. It does put a precedent there, though, doesn't it? A huge aid package for this industry. What about aviation? What about even hospitality, which can reopen, but may really struggle to make money in the months to come? Richard? Right, but Anna, what about the, the on that idea? I mean, the UK is now open for tourism. There's about 40, it's quite a smaller number of countries, never mind the 75 on the list. Actually, those number of countries that you can come to from with a reciprocity is really basically uh, Europe and the EU. And when do we expect to know if it's working? Oh, that will be very interesting to see whether we're actually going to get tourists in. Many people think that we've actually really missed the boat. The government really has missed the boat in terms of easing up on the blanket quarantine. It's already July and the summer season's such a big one for the UK. And there is a degree of confusion, particularly for Brits wanting to travel abroad. Where can they travel to? This big list that was unveiled where you could go to, they was supposedly, but not have to quarantine in return. Some of those countries, like Australia and New Zealand, don't frankly want right. Brits just yet. Um, there are lots of restrictions in place. So, yes, lots of confusion here. Hopefully Thank we you. get tourism Anna. back, but I suspect not immediately. Thank you, Anna. Finally to the arts and the Mona Lisa. After four months of shutdown, she's back. The Mona Lisa returns proudly back on display, gazed on by the socially distanced visitors. One does wonder what the Mona Lisa has been doing during lockdown and what she's been thinking as she's been there. But there she is now back. We can all be assured she was doing the right thing all along, as you can see from the various memes and articles with behind a mask. That's it. That's First Mover today. I'm Richard Quest. Julia will be back bringing peace, calm and sanity to all she surveys. I'll have Quest means business at 3 o'clock Eastern. It's 8 and 9 in Europe. Until whatever you're up to between now and then, I hope it's profitable. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.